Praise the Lord for His great mercies. If you have your scriptures, open up to Hosea chapter 1. And I know that that's probably not a book you spend a ton of time in, so start looking for it now so that you uh, aren't left in the dust when we start reading together. We have uh, note sheets and pencils, Bibles going out to you. So if you need a Bible, just put your hand up like this and one of our guys will bring a Bible to you. We would love for you to have the Word of God before you as we enter into this time of study in the Old Testament scripture of Hosea, this, uh, this wonderful minor prophet that has much to tell us about the redemptive and unfading love of Jesus Christ towards his people. So considering the, uh, how should I say, the robust fertility of the pastors around here, there are more PKs at FFC than there are at the uh, average Christian church. Now what is a PK? A PK is a pastor's kid or a preacher's kid. Uh, preacher's kids are often scrutinized. They're often judged a little bit more strictly than other kids. If a pastor kid gets in trouble, the pastor's always going to hear about it, Right. Um, they are often expected to be examples to other kids and leaders. But there's also a lot of expectations from mom and dad on pastor's kids. Because mom and dad are usually so involved with church, a pastor's kid is almost always there for the events that go on. If there's a work day, you can expect the pastor's kids to have a shovel in their hands. Pastor's kids always have to sit on the front row a little bit worried about whether they're going to turn into a sermon illustration on a Sunday morning and become embarrassed by some of their antics or things that they have done. It is not easy to be a pastor's kid. But at least you're not Hosea's kid, right? The prophet Hosea, who was the mouthpiece for the Lord, who spoke to the northern kingdom of their indiscretions, who proclaimed the thus saith the Lord message, that was put onto his heart by the Holy Spirit, he has children as well. And his kids, in a very unique and special way, are used as part of Hosea's difficult message that he is sharing with the people of Israel. Today we're going to look at verses 4 through 11 of chapter 1. And I've titled this sermon, The Three Words of Judgment. And these are not just any old words. These three words are specifically the names of Hosea's kids. That's just the names that are going to be used today to display some of the indiscretions of Israel. I don't want us to get the idea that each of these children were little reprobates running around, being particularly uh, unfaithful, um, although I'm sure they got into their own fair share of trouble but by naming his three children these specific words, these specific words which are related to the judgments that Israel had earned for themselves, the prophet is furthering this, uh, this concept that his very life is going to be an expression, a vivid display of the message that he is preaching. He has obeyed the Lord. He has taken a wife of uh, unfaithfulness to himself. And also in obedience to the, the word of the Lord, he is building a family, and that family then becomes, in some ways, a picture of the unfaithfulness of Israel, the nation, towards God. As the offspring of Gomer, these names symbolize the fruit of unfaithfulness, the things that flow out of Israel's unfaithfulness to their covenant king. And so if you've got your Bibles and, and you have them open to Hosea, we're going to be looking uh, today at most of the first chapter. And we're going to hopefully have enough time to uh, get, come to a better understanding of what each of these three words mean 
and how, in fact, uh, they, they, they tend to have a dual meaning, one of judgment, but also one of hope. So starting with verse 4. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel, and on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. There's more than just this section, but uh, to keep our thoughts organized, I'm going to stop here and pray for our time together in the Word this morning. We're going to look at these couple of verses that begin our section, and then we will read more progressively as we work through this concept uh, in the, the time of the sermon. So let's bow our heads together and pray that the Lord would direct us. God, we are but fools without the instruction and illumination of the Holy Spirit, and so we do ask, God, that you would open our eyes and that uh, even though we are sometimes a stiff-necked people, that you would direct our gaze to where it needs to be settled. Father, help us to look upon the grace of Jesus Christ and to see, even in this Old Testament passage, Lord, the wonders of your mercy to us. God, uh, we, we understand that faithlessness is not just something that afflicted the people of Israel. This is a pandemic native to every human heart. And so I pray, Lord God, that you would help us to face our own sin this morning, Lord. I pray that you would give us an introspection that we might examine our hearts and come to terms with the specific ways that we need to be repentant towards our rebelliousness and specific ways that we need to rest and trust in your grace for victory over our sin, Lord. And help us to know that the relationship that we have with you, if it is a right and repaired relationship, then it is all due to the work that you have accomplished and not to our own good deeds or lovability. We praise you, God, for Hosea and his faithfulness as a prophet. And we pray, Lord God, that, that he would even point us to Christ, that instead of being impressed by this man who was obedient, even though it cost him much, that we would see that his obedience was only a shadow of the true obedience that Jesus Christ showed in going to the cross. We love you and pray this all in the perfect name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. So we begin this morning with the prophet Hosea obeying the command of God that he received in the previous verse. In fact, I might back it up just a little bit and read verse 3 again so we, we can see where we're at. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Deblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. This was the instruction of the Lord God. And we see that Hosea was willing to follow the instructions. Despite the difficulty of the charge, he takes a woman named Gomer to be his wife, and we're told that Gomer conceives and bears to him a son. Now, God makes it very clear what this boy is to be named. His family is to be an expression of how God sees his own covenant relationship with Israel at this point in time. And the name of uh, the first son will be the first word of judgment that we examine today, and that name is Jezreel. Now, the root of this name, Jezreel, can be communicated well, it can communicate two different concepts. They sort of represent two polar opposites in a way. The word literally means to scatter, but it is most often used in the Hebrew context as a word meaning to sow seed. So you can get the word picture. It's kind of like a farmer who has prepared his fields. The soil is ready, and so he has a sack of seed, and he grabs a handful of that seed, and he casts it out into the soil. He is sowing seed into a field, with the intention of that seed one day germinating and turning into a productive plant. So there's a productive or a positive sense of this word Jezreel, which means the Lord sows seed. 
But there's also a second negative meaning to it. This meaning is somewhat destructive in a sense. Because the word that is used here to describe the sowing of seed is also the very same Hebrew word that means to scatter or to cast something away from one's self. So the title Jezreel here given to Hosea's first son can therefore signify destruction or separation or it can signify production and life. In the prophet's current stream of revelation, here in these first couple of verses we're going to look at this morning, Jezreel is carrying the destructive meaning of scatter. We know that because of the context. Each of the three names that are given this morning to the children of Hosea and Gomer are going to be names of judgment that God is levying upon the people of Israel. Due to their persistent rebellion and disregard of the covenant law, the northern kingdom will soon be defeated in battle by the people uh, of the nation that is right now advancing upon Israel and others. That nation is Assyria, and their foreign power will soon arrest the power of Israel. At the time of Hosea's prophecy, Assyria's strength had already been growing. Several other nations had come under the conquering control of this growing superpower. And when Assyria defeated a people, they had a complex strategy of both displacing large portions of the population they had just conquered. In other words, they would make the people they just conquered move out of their land into different portions of the empire. And then they would also bring in people from Assyria itself and they would grant land gifts to those Assyrians and have them settle in that new place, thereby spreading the culture of Assyria and giving the people that they just conquered less of a chance of rising up as a unified force and trying to take back their nation and hold on to their culture. Note, too, the similarities in the word uh, Jezreel to Israel. In the Hebrew tongue, Jezreel and Israel are almost the same sound. And so we see here that Jezreel is going to become indicative of Israel and what God intends to do as a result of their unfaithfulness. Before Jezreel was used as a name for Hosea's son, it was not a foreign word to the Israelites. It was actually the name of a significant city in Israel, one that had a dark and a destructive past. Now, we don't have the time to read through the entire record of the city of Jezreel this morning as recorded in 1st and 2nd Kings. If you have some time devotionally this week and you want to get back into those chapters, I would recommend you read through them. It'll give you some wonderful foundation for, for understanding what we're going to be learning this morning. But I am going to give us a brief rundown of what happened in those two chapters. One of the most wicked kings in the northern kingdom's history was King Ahab and his perhaps even more infamous wife, Jezebel. Under Jezebel's influence, worship of the false god Baal or Baal flourished in the northern kingdom of Israel. And the prophets of the true God were persecuted. In 1 Kings 21, we, we see a taste of King Ahab's wickedness. If we were to read through that chapter, we would see that the king had a home in this city called Jezreel. There were two main capitals then under Ahab's rule. Samaria was the true capital of the northern kingdom. But Jezreel served as almost a, a secondary capital to the northern kingdom. And there was a palace of the king there. Now the king had his eyes and his heart set on a particular piece of property that was just adjacent to where his palace had been built. He wanted to build a vegetable garden there. He coveted it in his heart. So 
Uh, if you need to know more about coveting, come tonight to our evening services. We're going to be talking about the 10th commandment and the, and the impact that it can have on those who are not trusting the Lord. Ahem covets this piece of property, and he tries to buy the plot of land from its civilian owner, a man named Naboth, because he wants to develop it for his own desires. But the land is not just land to Naboth. The land is inheritance to him. It is a gift that God has given to his family line, and he is invested in keeping that, line in, that land in his family line forever. So he refuses to sell. Now Ahab reacts like a six-year-old would react. And some of you who are my age knows that just because you're not six doesn't mean you're not capable of acting six. He pouts, he throws a fit, he gets depressed. And Jezebel, his wicked wife, has a simple solution to her whining husband. Simply find a way to have Naboth killed and then take his land. This is exactly what this wicked power couple do. Naboth is invited to a banquet where two worthless individuals are paid by the king to stand up and to lie and to accuse Naboth of blaspheming God. The crowd reacts in outrage to these, these, uh, these judgments. Naboth is dragged outside. Even though he did not commit this crime, he is stoned to death. And Ahab is pleased to hear that his problem has been swept away. He goes to take possession of Naboth's vineyard in Jezreel, and he is met there by Elijah the prophet, his old nemesis, as you might remember, uh, in the showdown between the prophets of Baal and the prophet, uh, the prophet of God, Elijah. Uh, this nemesis, Elijah, comes to proclaim judgment upon Ahab for this sin that he has committed against Naboth. Verse 20 of chapter 21 of 1 Kings, Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? And Elijah answered, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Just stop and think about those words. You have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. The whole judgment of Hosea upon the northern kingdom rests upon their behavior, which in many ways was like the behavior of a harlot. The northern kingdom was betrothed to God. They were supposed to be a wife to him. And yet their affections instead went to the highest bidder. Whichever false god seemed to offer them a blessing that they needed at the time, they would put the worship of Yahweh to the side and they would go and sacrifice to that god, hoping to gain favor from him. Whatever foreign nation seemed to be willing to offer protection and security for Israel in the north, rather than going to their own god and trusting him to be their good shepherd and to look out for them and to cast away the bears and the lions and whatever else threatened the flock, they would go to something like Egypt. And they would try to make an alliance which would cause them to feel like they were secure and happy. And so just as Ahab has sold himself in a sense to wickedness to get what he wants, so too has the nation of Israel in many ways displayed their unfaithfulness to Yahweh by acting like a harlot to him. Notice the language that's used to describe King Ahab's actions. So Hosea's family is to be a living metaphor of the way that Israel is being unfaithful in their relationship to their God. And Ahab is representative of that unfaithfulness uh, to a T. He's not only the one who is willing to sell himself to prostitute his values to get what he wants. Sadly, the great majority of those who live in the northern kingdom are similarly disregarding the covenant that God has established between himself and them. And so as a consequence of this treachery, Elijah proclaims a great woe upon Ahab there in the city of Jezreel. 
The prophet declares that since Ahab has sinned against God and has caused the whole nation to fall into sin, his whole family line will be cut off from the throne. And we fast forward a little bit to 2 Kings. And we look in 2 Kings chapter 9 and we see how that plays out. The word of the Lord again came to the prophet Elijah, who ministered for quite some time. And Elijah hears that this judgment on Ahab's line is about to become a reality. So he enlists the help of a junior prophet who's younger than him to go to a man named Jehu and to task this man Jehu with the prophetic work of putting to death all of Ahab's family, starting with his son Joram, who has taken over the leadership of Israel in the northern kingdom. In 2 Kings 9, Verses 7 through 10. This is the junior prophet sent of Elijah speaking to Jehu. And he says, And you shall strike down the house of Ahab, your master, so that I may avenge on Jezebel the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord. For the whole house of Ahab shall perish. And I will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free, in Israel. And the dogs shall eat Jezebel in the territory of Jezreel, and none shall bury her. So there's a grisly outcome that's going to flow out of Ahab's sin. Leadership of the kingdom was being stripped from Ahab's line and being given by divine appointment to this man Jehu, who was anointed by this young prophet and told he would serve next as God's instrument of justice. This man Jehu initially does the right thing. He obeys the word of the prophet, He assembles a small army and makes his way, where? To Jezreel. Jezreel is where Ahab's son Joram, who is the acting king over Israel, is recovering from some wounds he received in battle. He had tag-teamed with Ahaziah, who was the king of the southern kingdom Judah at the time, to try to take on a foreign power. And he's nursing himself back to health in Jezreel. And there Jehu puts Joram to the sword, And then he goes on to kill the 70 living sons of Ahab so that there would be no chance that another one of his offspring or those who were even covenanted to him by bond could ascend again to the throne. Each of those men are beheaded and their heads are sent back to Jezreel in 70 baskets. And the curse that Ahab brought upon himself and his house is fulfilled. Now Jehu though he is acting as God's instrument of justice in this particular story, himself goes beyond the word of what God had told him to do. Not only does he execute Joram, the king of the northern kingdom, but he takes it beyond what God had commanded. And he also executes Ahaziah in that moment, the king of Judah at that time. So in one fell swoop, the northern kingdom loses its king and the southern kingdom of Judah also loses its king. Jehu's own thirst for power and influence cause him to set the law of God to the side. The instruction of God is added to. He puts his own addition into the law. And so even though Scripture commends Jehu for doing what God had commanded him to do in bringing justice upon Ahab, Jehu's own sin upon the southern king, upon the anointed of God, demands justice as well. His pride has left a stain of blood upon the city of Jezreel. Now, I know this is a lot to digest, and I don't want the point of all this sermon this morning to be lost in the jumble of history. So just recognize this this morning. We see in the history of Jezreel, in King Ahab's treachery, in God's judgment upon Ahab's family line, and even in the curse that came upon Jehu himself for going beyond God's command and not being faithful to the word that was 
prophesied to him, we see that Yahweh is a God of justice. And this God of justice does not forget his word. Hang on to that, church. This God of justice does not forget his word. Now, contrary to popular belief, time is not the remedy for everything that ails us. Time does not heal all wounds. And some of you can look at me today and nod and say, yeah, I've been feeling the hurt from something that happened to me years ago. It's still not made right. But you've heard that popular phrase before. The idea is that we, when we've blown it, we've done something sinful or wrong, when we have harmed ourselves or done, our, uh, or done harm to others, that we just need to wait it out. We just need to give it time, and the sting of what we did will eventually fade, and things will get back to normal. Our grief will lessen, our bitterness will be forgotten. And we see this does happen sometimes between people, right? I'm, I might forget that I owe you money, and over time you're just like, I'm never going to get that back from pastor. And so you just, you just forget about it, and it's not a big deal to you. You might give up on the idea that I would eventually own up to what I did when I hurt you so long ago, and that I'll ever confess my guilt, so you just forgive me in your heart and you just continue on with the relationship. You might become so caught up in the wrong that someone else did to you that my sin against you seems small, and you just don't have time or energy to deal with that anymore, and so it, in a sense, time just kind of covers it over. The, the, the worries of today are more important than the worries of yesterday. So in that sense, it can almost feel as though time has healed the wound, but has it really? Has justice really been done? Remember, friends, that man is not ultimately in control of justice. God is. And that is a good thing. Man is not in control of justice. God is in control of justice, and God does not forget a single thing that has been done in violation of his command. God does not just sweep iniquity under the rug and pretend like it never happened. God does not do violence to justice by acting like it never occurred in the first place. God is perfectly righteous, and God must ensure that every sin that has ever been committed against His good and perfect law will be dealt with. So time does not heal all. Only atonement can heal all. There's a big difference there. At the end of His earthly ministry, Jesus made His way towards Jerusalem. He knew what would happen when he got there. He would be taken into custody by those who were threatened by him, the high priests and others who felt that Jesus was a threat to their authority over Israel. He would be abandoned by his followers and his friends in that moment. They would not stand with him, but he would have to walk this path alone. He would be accused of crimes that he did not commit, of serious sins, sins punishable by death under the Hebraic law, and he would be sentenced to death by crucifixion. Jesus knew exactly what he was getting himself into, and yet he obeyed the command of God the Father, and he offered up his own life. Why did this have to happen? Did Jesus just die on that fateful Good Friday to set an example for us? Is that why he died? Did he intend to inspire us through his sacrifice that we might be sacrificially good to one another? Was his death a way to make us feel bad about sin and to convict our hearts so that hopefully we would, we would avoid it in the future? No. Jesus went to the cross because God does not forget. 
God is in charge of justice. God didn't ignore Ahab's sin. God didn't brush aside Jehu's sin. And neither will he forget about our sin. And that's a big deal. Because what does it say in Ecclesiastes 7.20? It says, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Not a one. And that wasn't just true in the day of, of Solomon. Even today, you could search the whole wide world over and you couldn't find a single individual who does good and never sins. 1 John 1.8 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Every one of us has broken the law of God. Probably several times today before you even got here, you had offended your creator. And that sin deserves punishment. If you think your sin is deserving of something less than the punishment of hell, then you don't understand the perfect purity and righteousness of the God we have come to worship today. We have violated not just man made up by, or laws made up by man, not just precepts to make our society a better place, but we have violated the righteous decree of a God who knows all and who is eternally good. And so by breaking that law, we have brought upon ourselves a huge condemnation. And it doesn't matter if you can look around the world and find people that are worse than you, more obvious sinners than you are, because James 2 verse 10 says, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. That means you may have never committed adultery, but you're guilty of it because you have violated the law and so you are a rebel to the kingdom of goodness and righteousness if you are not in Christ. God could not simply treat us who are sinful and rebellious. He could not just treat us as though we were good because we were truly and sincerely bad. If God had done that, if he just said, I'm just going to treat everybody like they're good, even though they're sinners, then salvation would be nothing more than God lying about our righteousness. And the God we've come to worship today cannot lie, friends. He cannot do that because God is perfect. He's a perfect judge. He loves righteousness. So he had to make a way for the legal debt that we owed to him to be completely paid in full. And so Jesus made his way to Jerusalem, knowing that he would be condemned as a sinner, even though no sin was found in him. And he did that because he knew that even the sin of the elect had to be judged. And he was willing to let that sin be judged, not upon their heads, but upon his own. To those who have been brought near to the God by the generous covenant of grace, there is no longer terror regarding the judgment of God. Not because our sin has been forgotten and, and ignored. Not because the Lord isn't going to settle the account of our sin. No, we don't have to tremble because the matter has already been settled by the sacrifice of our Savior Jesus Christ. His lashes that He took upon His shoulders were the lashes destined for us. His suffering was our suffering on that cross. God will secure perfect justice regarding every law that is broken in one of two ways. Either through the punishment of the sinner himself if he is not in Christ, or through a suitable substitute who pays the price on the sinner's behalf, and that only substitute can be Jesus. We are seeing an example 
of the first kind of judgment in the way that God is dealing with the northern kingdom of Israel. He is allowing their sins, having been accumulated for years, having not been met with repentance and a guilty heart, he is allowing their sins to seal their condemnation. Verse 4 of Hosea 1, And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. When the Lord says on that day, he's referring to the day that Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel, would fall to the Assyrian army. 722 BC will be the last day that Samaria is under Israel control. On that day, God would break the bow of Israel. This is a phrase meaning that he would decimate the military power of the northern kingdom. They would no longer be relevant in the national scene. The faith and the confidence they had put in their own abilities or in their earthly allies will fail them in 722 BC. They should have put their sights upon the covenant that God had brought them into. They should have had their faith on the power of the living God. So this is the first word of judgment, but there are two more. And so we read in verse uh, 6 of chapter 1. We read, therefore I will... Yes, therefore... Uh, that's not right. That's chapter 2. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. Gomer conceives again. But the wording is a little different this time. Take note of how it's described here by the prophet Hosea. The scripture tells us that Gomer bore three children. The first child, Jezreel, is the only child that we are specifically told was born to Hosea. Gomer is the second time here. Gomer conceived, or the first time we see that Gomer conceived and bore him a son. But here the second time in verse 6, we see that she conceived again and bore a daughter. And then in verse 8, for the third child, and she conceived and bore a son. The other children aren't given the designation of being specifically Hosea's children. So that might mean nothing. It might just be assumed there. But the door is left open for consideration. The second and third children may be the product of Gomer's infidelity. Because as we begin to read more in chapter 2, we're going to see that uh, while we don't learn much about the children themselves, we do learn more about this woman, Gomer. And she does indeed live a life that is in many ways parallel to the unfaithfulness of Israel. She herself is not faithful to her husband, Gomer. Hosea 2.4 refers to the children as children of whoredom or harlotry, which might indicate that the second and the third child born by Gomer were not actually Hosea's but that, that he still played the role of, of father to them. In some ways, that might be another parallel to the wonderful blessing of God's mercy and, and kindness to us, that though we are rebels of the kingdom, he adopts us into his own family. Now, the second word of judgment is in the Hebrew, the, the term lo ruhama. Lo ruhama is a compound word that means no mercy. In naming Hosea's second child no mercy, God declares that he will have no mercy on the house of Israel. Now, could there be 
a more terrifying declaration, but that the God of all creation would not have mercy on a people any longer. I can't think of more terrifying words than to hear that God would remove his mercy and kindness. We must not forget that at this point, God's relationship with Israel is over a thousand years old. He has shown tremendous mercy through that time, hasn't he? He has shown mercy to this nation, this, this people group Israel, in their establishment through Abraham and Sarah, who were well past childbearing age and had no business giving birth to children, and yet God gave them a progeny. He gave them Isaac. And through Isaac, we, we get Jacob, and through Jacob, we get the 12 tribes of Israel. So God showed them great mercy by forming them to begin with. He showed them great mercy by retrieving them from the slavery they found themselves in. He was kind to rescue them from one more powerful than themselves. He was kind to show them that he was the one true God and to release them from that bondage so that they might go to a place of promise. He was kind by forgiving their grumblings in the wilderness. After he saved them from a life of, of, of hard labor and slavery, many of them doubted that he would do them good. They doubted that he would take them to a place of promise. They, they longed for their life of slavery again, and yet he showed them great mercy in not casting them away, but in striving with them and being patient with them and through the prophet Moses, getting them back on track to see why they should worship this true God and trust his covenant words. He showed them mercy by loving them and leading them, even after they cried out for earthly kings. Though God was a, a good and a noble king to them, they said, we want a king like the other nations of the world. They wanted to be led by a man that looked like them and sounded like them. And so he gave them those kings and continued to strive with them, even though these kings were time and again wicked and unfaithful to the covenant of God. He showed them mercy by remaining their God, even after the northern and the southern kingdoms divided against one another. And so we have example after example of God's great mercy poured out upon the nation of Israel. But we also have example after example of Israel failing to learn from their mistakes and constantly returning to their sinful and rebellious ways. And so God announces that the way he's going to deal with the northern kingdom will be a display of his justice by way of removing his mercy and allowing them to pay the penalty of the sin that they refuse to turn away from in repentance. Now there's a distinction of division here between God's people, between Israel, the kingdom in the north, and Judah, the kingdom in the south. It is here that we see the way that God remains or that God maintains his sanctity and expresses his just character, but at the same time demonstrates his divine mercy and freely gives grace. He says, but I will have mercy on the house of Judah and I will save them by the Lord their God. <clears throat> the language that Hosea uses here <clears throat> to indicate that the judgment represented by Lo Ruhama is a corporate judgment, it is on the house of Israel. <clears throat> Those elements that characterize the corporate identity of the covenant people in the north are about to be stripped away. They will no longer have a king. They will no longer have military might. Their bow will be broken. They will live under the yoke and the control of a foreign people. But this doesn't mean that the people of the north will be utterly forsaken, nor does it mean that the people of the southern kingdom, Judah, will be completely redeemed. Remember throughout the scripture that we hear that even in the greatest times of trial, God will always preserve a remnant. 
a faithful portion of the people who God will keep for himself. And we will hear more of that in a few moments. So though the house of Israel will fall, that doesn't mean that no one in the northern kingdom will believe and be preserved through it. The method by which God will redeem Judah, the southern kingdom, is very significant here. He makes it clear in the negative how he's not going to do it, doesn't he? He says, I will not save them by sword, bow, by horses, by horsemen. He's not going to do it by the conventional ways of the world. Not in the ways that Israel had calculated were necessary. And so fled into the arms of foreign powers and false gods instead of pressing into the arms of her true savior, Yahweh. The cloud of judgment that is forming over the northern kingdom grows darker still, for there's yet a third word of judgment remaining. In verse 8 of chapter 1, we read, But when she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. In the Hebrew, this compound term is lo-ami. This name in the Hebrew literally just means not my people. The northern kingdom will no longer carry the honor of being representative people of God in the world. The covenant will be carried on only by Judah in the south. Now there have always been some who were not truly Israel, though they descended from Abraham. Since the inception of the covenant, this is true. The ethnicity of Judaism is not a short indicator that one is saved. Just as John the Baptist stated in Luke chapter 3, verses 8 through 9, he said, Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is being laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So John the Baptist was in in many ways like Hosea here, declaring the truth, a truth that was hard for the nation of Israel to understand, that the blood that flowed in the veins of the Israelite was not salvific blood. It was only the faith that existed in some of the hearts of the Israelites that made them truly the people of God. If God was to be their people, then they were expected to treat him like God. They have consistently and persistently refused to do so as a nation, as a house. And so now God is revealing what their actions have alluded to for a long time now, that they are not his people. They are not living according to the covenant. You are not my people, and the second half is just as stunning, and I am not your God. God is... Even the God of the reprobates, we need to understand this correctly, right? But God is not God of the reprobate in the sense of a saving, personal, redemptive God that cares for and nurtures his own. Those who do not trust in God are enemies to the kingdom of God. And there is truly no other king, but they are living their lives as though the true king does not have authority over them, so they have no citizenship in his kingdom. They have no place at his table. Three children, three words of judgment, of punishment. And yet the Lord will not leave this message as nothing more than a declaration of failure. He will not leave this prophecy as nothing more than defeat for the north. If the covenant had hinged on the performance of man, then it is ever only a matter of time before the covenant will fail. For we cannot be perfect 
in our expression of covenantal terms. If you read this judgment and you think to yourself, okay, so Israel in the north didn't do things right, so they were cast off, they failed, but Judah in the south did things right, so they were loved by God and they remained his people, then you're missing an important aspect of the history of redemption here. Israel didn't fail because they weren't good enough. They failed because they couldn't help but fail. Any other people or group would have done the same thing that Israel did. Judah, though they received mercy for a while longer, went on to do the same thing. Every person sins and falls short of the glory of God, as does every people group, as does every nation. The catalog of man's failures immortalized in the eternal word of God shows us one thing. All men are without hope unless they cling to the mercy of God. For God is the only one who can keep covenant without fail. And there is yet hope because God desires this covenant to persist and therefore it cannot fail. God's will will not be abrogated. It will not be set to the side. And so it is in some ways intimidating for us to think that God is in charge of justice and God forgets nothing. But it is that same mind of God that forgets nothing that also gives us hope because he will not forget that he has covenanted with his people and he has promised a nation to, to Abraham, a nation that will be a blessing to all in the earth. Throughout the dark sky of judgment shines a ray of light. Starting in Hosea 1.10, a beam of hope that shoots down to us, reminding us that the people that they, that God has, uh, the people of God that they have ignored is never less the God they have ignored is nevertheless a God of mercy and grace. And so looking at verse 10 and 11 of chapter 1, we read, Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said to them, Children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. The prophecy pivots on a critical word here, the word yet. The word yet indicates that though man had done everything in their power, seemingly, to mess up the covenant of God, yet God has plans. Though all these words of judgment are true and will surely come to pass, judgment is not the sum total of the story. Verse 10 evokes promises made hundreds of years prior to Abraham, uh, prior uh, to us, to Abraham, promises that must be kept. And so Genesis 15, verses 1 through 5, we remember these words to Abraham, the father of Israel. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a, in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward, reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. In other words, one of his servants was in line to inherit the things that were his. He didn't have an heir to the throne. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man, Eliezer of Damascus, shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said to him, Look toward the heavens and number the stars if you are able to number them. And then he said, So shall your offspring be. 
And a few chapters later, in Genesis 22, he returns to this covenant with Abraham and, and he reinforces it and expands upon it. He said in verse 16, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, meaning his son Isaac, which he was commanded to sacrifice and then told not to sacrifice. We talked about that last week. Because you have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. We cannot miss the emphasis in these covenantal passages that it is not on what Abraham does, but it is on what God himself does in covenant. I am your shield, says the Lord to Abraham. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord regarding these promises. I will surely bless you, says the Lord, with numerous offspring, more than you can count or number. And then all the nations of the world will be blessed because of what has been promised to Abraham. Not all who are of Israel are Israel, meaning not all who physically descend of Abraham are a part of this promise. But because of the promises of God which cannot be broken, there will never cease to be a true Israel. And so we begin to see a shift in the three words of judgment here as the chapter closes out. In verse 10, And in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said to them, Children of the living God. Where was this said to them? What place is he referring to? It was said to them in Jezreel. It was said to them in that location. The word that promised a scattering of the people of Israel takes on a different tenor now that God has once again revealed that there is hope in Him. Jezreel will one day take on its productive meaning rather than its destructive meaning. Remember that word Jezreel has two aspects of truth. It can mean to scatter and to cast away from oneself and it seems like that is what is happening to the nation of Israel. Truly the house of Israel is being scattered but it can also mean a sowing of seed, a beginning of something productive and good. The seed of hope is sown here in the and the seed of hope is the promise that God will save them. Not by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen, but by his own righteous blood shed on behalf of God's people. Despite the fact that all men have earned judgment by way of their sin, yet the goodness of God means that his mercy remains for those who put their hope and their trust into him. The terms of the Abrahamic covenant, friends, that promised all the nations of the earth will be blessed through the seed of Abraham, will be fulfilled, and are being fulfilled as the power of the gospel is being sown throughout the earth, even today, as faithful preachers take it up in the pulpits around the world. People that we've prayed for earlier in this service, as the message of truth is declared, and as people hear it, and the Spirit changes their heart towards good, no matter whether their background is is the background of the Hebrews or whether their background is Russian or their background is South American or their background is any number of ethnicities, God is saving the people of the world. Every tribe, tongue, and nation is experiencing this. So there is a great reversal of these names as each of these judgments must be also seen to carry a strong promise of hope. Instead of no mercy, the people will taste the mercy of God as he withdraws wrath and redeems by his own power. Those who had forfeited their peoplehood will once again be restored as the people 
of God. And we will come to understand that God scattered his people for a productive purpose. There is still a great harvest to come. God will use even the fall of the seed to bring about the abundance of the crop. Glory be to the name of God, keeper of covenant. Let us pray. God, we praise you and thank you for your many promises. Promises that were given to us as an undeserved gift. Promises that are not kept by our faithfulness, but by your own. And let us not lose track of this. Throughout the book of Hosea, your faithfulness is the faithfulness that is on display to us. We are reminded again and again of how your love for us is first. How your love is greater than our love how your promises will always be kept. And so we thank you, Lord God, for being our good shepherd and for keeping us near to you. We thank you, Lord God, that the rod and the staff of the shepherd shall be a comfort to us who are your sheep. That when the word of Scripture lays bare our sin towards you, that the sting of that rod or that staff will cause us to once again walk in the light of your narrow path and be under the protection of your guiding hand. We pray, Lord God, that you would help us to understand the intricacies of your wonderful covenant, that we will have great expectations for the ways that you fulfill it in the world today, and that we would rejoice that you are even using humble vessels like us to accomplish some of these things. And so we praise you, Lord God, for your testimony. Every bit of the word of God is about your son, and so we praise you for learning about Christ today through Hosea and the prophecy that he gave to your people 700 years before the coming and advent of Jesus. Help us now, some 2,000 years after Jesus, to rejoice in the fact that none of these things has changed or been nullified or become obsolete. You are a God who holds fast to the truth. You will not forget any sin that is committed, but, Father, you will also not forget your promise to overcome our sin through the seed of David, through Jesus Christ our Savior. And it is by the power of his sacrifice, his death and burial, his resurrection, that we proclaim our confidence and peace today. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.